Hi, I'm Dubba, I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, back when I was still a university professor, one of the people I would always insist my students read was Paul D. Miller. His book, Rhythm Science, was required reading and used the DJ mix and cut-up technique as a template for understanding media, culture, technology, and society. And it also happens to be a very good clue to unpicking how he thinks. And of course, I also always made an effort to work some of his music into my classes, as well as into my old radio shows back in the day, because Paul D. Miller is far better known as DJ Spooky, that subliminal kid. And his avant-garde turntablism broke the concept of genre and the boundaries of hip-hop as he partnered with jazz pianist Matthew Shipp on one record and Slayer drummer Dave Lombardo on the next. He's a polymath, composer, record producer, philosopher, multimedia artist and writer, and he joined me on the MTF podcast for a chat about Charlie Parker, jogging, musical virtuosity, catastrophic climate change, virtual reality, the beat poets, the nature of evil, dressmaking, literacy, polar discovery, social justice, science fiction, subjective reality, the rise of computational power, some book recommendations, the anniversary of the birth of the internet, and a whole lot more that you wouldn't believe we could pack into just a leisurely and thoroughly enjoyable half-hour chat. This is the incredible DJ Spooky. Paul Miller, very, very good to have you here. And uh, thank you for joining us for the MTF podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure. I've, I've heard great things about what you guys are up to, and it's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So you're also known as DJ Spooky, and that's a subliminal kid. Where does that name come from? Well, it's kind of funny. Here we are in 2019, and um, it's the 50th anniversary of the internet. I love to bring that up as a as a punctuation point, if you think about the comma or semicolon in a sentence. So long story short, William S. Burroughs is a big uh, uh, hero of mine, and he wrote a book th- that there's a character called the Subliminal Kid. And uh, his books like Naked Lunch and so on are big inspirations for me to thinking about lang- language as a virus. That was one of his main things. Yeah. So 2019 to 1969 and earlier, the Subliminal Kid was a character that kept reappearing in his novels. Right. So he had a novel called Nova Express. And so I just sort of remixed and pulled that nickname from there. Was that kind of cut up approach to literature something that uh, influenced you when you started approaching turntablism? Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, the, the cut up technique and the way modern memory works, it's, you cannot separate the two because we're all bombarded with fragments. And I think the beat poets kind of got that with stream of consciousness narrative. So in the 1950s and 60s, recorded media was not as democratic as it is now. To walk around with a tape recorder like William S. Burroughs and cut up the tapes was must have been a radical you know, vision. But at the same time, Jack Kerouac, uh, Amiri Baraka, Allen Ginsberg, they were exploring language as a kind of a, a, a technology. And I think that the beat poets really explored the outer limits of poetry and music concrete recordings, pulling apart sound. Um, that was really a radical uh, vision at that time. So DJ culture, a little bit, a couple decades later, vinyl had become more ubiquitous and democratized, and you were able to just grab, you build your record collection, but you didn't want to play all the songs in your record collection. You would just play fragments. So uh, Grandmaster Flash, Africa Rambada, they set the tone for how I think about uh, social space with sound. But meanwhile, the beat poets made me think about the fine arts of the sound, kind of like, so I'm a mashup of those two worlds. 
Right. Um, the idea of uh, literature and uh, DJ culture and, uh, I guess, academia uh, all come together. How do you kind of uh, position yourself? What do you, what do you describe yourself as, first and foremost? <laughs> uh, a man of many hats, literally. I have lots of hats. Right. Um, the pun for me is that interdisciplinary art is our vocabulary now. We all are DJs. Everyone is playing with media, fragments, editing. Whether we or not we know it, when we crop a photo, when we pull a sound from a file, when we send a friend an MP3 or whatever format you want. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of uh, remixable and editable experiences are the modern vernacular. Um, so I started out as a writer, artist, and musician, but DJing kind of became the end, end game of all of that. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and both parents were professors. My mom was a historian of design. Uh, named Rosemary Reed Miller, and she wrote books. One of her most well-known books is called Threads of Time, 500 Years of Women Designers. Right. Uh, and my father was dean of Howard University's law school. So I always grew up in a household that valued design um, and historical thinking, like nothing just magically appears. Um, you always have to think there's an ideology of every object around you. Uh, the, the laptop has an ideology. The, your, the way you tie your shoelaces has an ideology. Uh, the fact that women's pants don't have pockets. My mom was a Marxist historian. She would write essays about that. Right, for sure. <laughs> uh, or s sort of Marxist, but I'll, I, 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 I Marxist. won't. Yeah, I won't split hairs on that one. But at the end of the day, when you have parents who are both really into that, it just sort of sinks into your consciousness that nothing is neutral. Everything carries some uh, complex mechanism of thought, of thought, you know. So DJing just seemed to really get that as a basic uh, structural mechanism for, for thinking about collage, appropriation, and above all, sharing files, music, and so on. Do you think the affordances of technologies as they progress uh, become more free and open to that kind of uh, use of media, or, or is it becoming more restrictive in some ways? You know, on one hand, corporations are pillaging everything right now, especially if, of course, face the, the, the Furious Five, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and then occasionally, you know, some of the other ones that sort of build up to the fifth dimension there. But um, you, are, you're, you are not your data. I mean, the fun part about our time is there's a separation between analog media, you know, playing vinyl, going you know, up to social spaces with actual real human beings, and then the, the digital mirror that like, sort of people are just pillaging for, for financial gain. Um, so how does that work with uh, your everyday experience? I mean, this is something I think we're all kind of queasily realizing your, your data is being used in all sorts of uh, unanticipated ways, whether it be for computational propaganda during the 2016 election, stuff like Cambridge Analytica or the internet in, um, uh, what was the IA group out of uh, Russia and St. Petersburg? I always, they have a very generic name, like the Internet Agency. Yeah. Something really, really <laughs> generic, but really freaking evil. So, um, you know, that's on one hand. But then on the other hand, we've seen an explosion of all these platforms and routes for getting work out. More people are creative than ever before. More people are being freed from the norms of how they think about expressing their work or getting it out. So we're seeing a renaissance uh, of many, many different approaches, but at the same time, the uh, there's a Darwinism in effect with all these, you know, like I said, the Furious Five, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, five companies that dominate the landscape. Uh, meanwhile, if you're in China, you got the China uh, versions of those, Yuku, Alibaba, stuff like WhatsApp, et cetera. Yeah. Um, or we, Tencent, we chat, world, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I feel like as an artist, these are intriguing. I, I, I personally, I could dig without social media. I would love to delete everything and just sit across from a person and have a glass of tea or whatever medium they, they're into 
and actually have a human dimension there. But you didn't realize why limit yourself because you have all of these different platforms. Let's play. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where I'm at now. You said something really interesting in Rhythm Science, which was this idea about um, how there is nothing that is not man-made. There's nothing that is beyond civilization. Do you still think about the sort of uh, the natural world like that, that this is all uh, constructed? Yeah, look around us. We're on a, a skyscraper with a view of Austin, and there's skyscrapers going up every day. Meanwhile, the river and the air systems are polluted and dealing with the Anthropocene era uh, kind of after effect. Um, so how we look at the human imagination and how we think about how it expresses itself in these toxic materials around us, air pollution, climate change. Uh, you know, we're literally in the middle of a huge mass extinction that's being caused by human consumption patterns. You know, that's just real stuff happening. It's not like I'm, I, I, anytime I meet a climate denier, it's like trying to argue with your toaster. Yeah. You know, they just, these people are so devastatingly lost in their own delusions about personal agency and their sense of being uh, free of the world. But meanwhile, we are all locked and loaded into a system that we're doing this huge experiment with. Like every screen, you, we don't even realize how much staring at a screen is messing our eyes up. Or we don't, you know, like, I'll give you one funny example. In China, they're having an epidemic of nearsightedness because so many kids are staring at screens. Right. Um, so when you think about the heart of your question, it's like, human beings, if we can imagine something, we can usually start moving towards it. I don't know. I, I, one, uh, I think, response that goes to the heart of what you're saying is like the Greeks. Uh, they didn't, they never went to Antarctica. They never went to the North Pole, but they named them because they were looking at these uh, star constellations, Arcturus. Mm -hmm. It's just the root word for the, uh, the Greek term for the bear. Yeah. And the constellation of the bear was how they navigated in the Mediterranean. Um, so that's Arctic, you know, going to the north. But they said, wait a second, if we got the north, we have to have the south too. So they had Antarctic. Uh -huh. But they never went to either one, but they had the language to imagine those huge distant spaces. So that does we, that imaginative you know, potential make you hopeful, optimistic about that? Or, or are, we, are we doomed? Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I think the way our civilization is going right now is probably unsustainable. And there's no question it's going to have to either really readdress inequality. It's going to have to readdress how we think about social justice and climate justice. And above all, um, how we look at, you know, the impact of refugees, because there's going to be a tremendous amount of refugees as climate change goes into high gear. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's already happening they've had more forest fires, oceans, islands sinking, you know, et cetera. These are very clear signals that climate change has already reached massive uh, proportions, but it's going to get deeper and it's going to get weirder. Um, I don't know if we're going to have 7 billion people on this planet by, you know, by the end of this century, but it's, these are very heady and strange times. It's like uh, human beings have played this incredible experiment on themselves saying, let's all stare at a screen for eight or 10 hours a day and see what happens. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, if I was just to respond, is there an optimistic thing? Yes, because we're all much more aware and we're all exchanging information, which I think is the best and most powerful thing human beings have is access to information. And that makes our minds more uh, agile and makes things more robust, but we can also be manipulated and, uh, pillaged and completely uh, exploited because of the naivete and the fact that a lot of people don't have digital literacy right. or just basic sensibility of uh, being skeptical or circumspect about data manipulation or, you know, whatever. Um, you know, so it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. What's I the role of the arts in all that? The arts, um, 
you know, it just helps people think another world is possible, which is so important. I mean, your average kid is growing with social media and with other forms of sort of inundation that displace their sense of self. Uh, they're clicking like on everyone else. They're always being bombarded with like someone else's lifestyle on Instagram or, you know, whatever. But, you know, the arts really say, look, this is subjective. This is how I'm thinking. This is my emotional space. And that's a powerful and beautiful thing. So I think art can help give us better tools, but we still need more tools to fight this kind of swirling chaos of uh, the digital experiment we've all moved into. Are we fooling our th ourselves if we think that uh, music's important or, or should we just be you know, putting away the entertaining things and going and dealing with things like climate change and, and, and those sorts of things? I think you can deal with any problem as an opportunity and every crisis is an opportunity. That's what a lot of economists would say. Um, and there are different ways to shake up this kind of Darwinistic situation that we're in. Um, so the good news is like you're saying, it's like, what's serious, you know, is of course, climate change, overpopulation, uh, pollution, uh, and so on. But there's ways that you can address those issues and not have to beat people over the head with it. I think this is where the left has said, look, we can fight by showing facts and data and information. And the right is like, you know what? Eh, I don't care about any of that. What's the good story? Um, and say, for example, Trump is a bizarrely perverse story, but he is heady enough for all these right-wing people to follow him like lemmings over the edge of civilization. Right. Um, so how do we deprogram people and give them better places to think? It, because that's what's really, I think, critical. Um, that's where you need better storytelling abilities, better you know, ways of podcasts, whatever. And more, there's more people listening to podcasts now than ever in history. Well, there's because people are very interested in information. But how do we activate and catalyze that? That's the sort of, uh, it's, I haven't met a right-wing person that it wasn't uh, open to a narrative. It's just, it has to be the right narrative to unlock their strange brain, you know, their, their locked psychology. Um, and my motto these days, especially all the states that are really red states, right-wing states are gonna be hammered by storms, hammered by flooding, hammered by all the climate stuff that they're denying. And um, like Alabama just had incredible storms. Meanwhile, their governors and all the senators and everybody's like, there's no climate change, but their house just washed away in a river. So, <laughs> right. you know, these are things that they're going to have to really think very hard about as they move further down the 21st century timeline. Where's hip hop culture today? Wow. These are great meta questions. <laughs> Where is hip hop? I mean, part of it is everybody's using the same software to make beats that, you know, Fruity Loops, uh, Ableton Live and so on. So you can hear like trap, you know, a lot of the drum beats and stuff have come, become quite, you know, standardized. Um, same with house, hip hop, techno, dubstep. There's a standardization going on. Uh, same with like the way people are using auto pitch correction to sound like these robotic sing song voices in so many songs right now. Um, I'm listening to old jazz and dub at the moment. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I've been listening to Charlie Parker, uh, when my free time, when I don't want to think about electronic music, I'm listening to uh, Charlie Parker's birds, uh, his stuff, you know, um, or anthology, for example, is one of my favorite albums. Yeah. Uh, then on the other end of the spectrum, dub, like Lee Scratch Perry and earlier, uh, King Tubby, things like that. So hip hop, it's gotten so commercial and so predictable and you could do an applied artificial intelligence to analyze 
which I actually have done. <laughs> uh, long story, but if you go by my website in about a couple of weeks, we're going to have an album that's working with artificial intelligence to generate electronic music um, uh, for a project called, you know, The Invisible Hand. Uh-huh. So we're going to be doing generative adversarial networks to actually make better beats or better voices or better styles. Because there was a moment where it looked like jazz and, and hip hop were going to intersect, and then there was this kind of trajectory we imagined where it was going to sort of let go of four four rhythms or or you know predictive melodies and and those sorts of things. But it didn't seem to happen. It seemed to be like there was a kind of brief brush with the sort of the the you know the aesthetics of jazz. You know, have a saxophone solo on it or something. But then it sort of departed ways again. It ricocheted. Yeah. I mean, they they collided cross-sectioned wise and then like the collision spun both vehicles off you know into a different trajectory um i think jazz took more from hip-hop than hip-hop took from jazz that's a good one you know there's 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 an argument there i mean say for example nas his father was a blues musician or if you look at like you know other pop producers like will i am or even someone like moby most of their stuff does not have a jazz kind of component but then on the other hand dj premier uh the roots you know, these are really important tastemakers in the medium. Um, I'm on more of the avant-garde side of stuff, so I'm agnostic about any particular zone. But yeah, a lot of jazz musicians never quite got into hip-hop in the same way. Mm-hmm. But you're right, they, they took the 4-4 tempo, they took uh, other kinds of minimalism approaches. And it's, I think it's been a very fruitful cross-breeding, you know, it depends on what people are into. I love P-Rock and CL Smooth, they sample old jazz all the time. Mm. Um, and some of their albums are still just classics of the 90s. And I feel like Grandpa now is saying, oh, the 90s, and like then you realize there's actually, the 90s is still really popular. People won't let go of the 90s hip-hop thing. Tribe Called Quest is jazz, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, for sure. And so on and so on. And then you look at the, the contemporary London jazz scene, for instance, and, and it's infused with hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's really interesting that there, at least there was the dialogue at some point that, uh, that both parties went away with stuff. Um, uh, turntablism, particularly, I'm, I'm also interested in because that was something that was, you know, there was Doug, Doug Prey's uh, documentary that came out and then there was a sort of an explosion and people were buying turntables, the rest of it. Where is turntablism at now? Wow, these are, okay, it's getting deeper in the rabbit hole here. All right, so turntablism in one level... Uh, kind of beha- went to a bedrock of like, there's now all these DJ schools everywhere, DJ Academy and so on and so on, Scratch sure. Academy, uh, which is great. On the other hand, it didn't, it doesn't have the same gravitational pull as it did in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, on the other hand as well, vinyl has reached epic levels of sales. In fact, many people are saying it's single-handedly saving a lot of the music industry. So those are all good things and very positive things. Um, I think that sometimes mediums become uh, very popular, but the skill set to get in there and get creative, it takes, you know, it takes a couple months of just figuring it out um, and then a couple of years to get mastery. So most people have the attention span of a gnat. Mm-hmm. They're not really going to lock in on something that takes so long. Even playing guitar, you could probably be up and running within a couple, like two or three weeks of practice. DJing, having a good feel for scratching and having a good feel of the sensibility of what makes sense over a bead or over a certain style of scratch that takes a while and you have to listen and listen and listen and listen same with guitar playing too don't get me wrong i was going to say if it only takes a couple of weeks i'm doing something really badly wrong because i've had 35 years of not being very good at the instruments oh, wow. it's uh, it's a bit disappointing on that front um so it's really interesting that there are all these kind of art- artistic expressions and outlets and so on but one of the things that i think technologies are doing uh particularly from a music creation perspective is that they're 
lowering the entry barrier for people to be able to make things that sound good to them. Right. It's not like sort of picking up a violin and spend three three years sounding awful before you can play something. But but it, uh, I guess taking away uh, a little bit of um, the virtuoso side of things as well. Do you think that there's uh, you know there are, there are people who say learning a musical instrument should be hard? Do you mm -hmm. go along with that? Well, there's people like Malcolm Gladwell with his 10,000 hours rule, which I think is actually a good baseline. I don't think it um, gives you mastery per se, but it gives you a sensibility. Mm -hmm. um, and to, in order to have a good sensibility, you need to have a good vocabulary in whatever medium. You got to sit down and listen to old records. You got to catch up on new stuff too, but then build a vocabulary of just sound and listening. I, I call it the art of listening. You're mm -hmm. always, I listen to music quite, quite a bit. But at the moment, I'm exhausted from contemporary stuff, and I've been listening to old jazz. Um, Rob Swift did a scratch routine a while that I always stuck with me, where he scratched the same as a, a horn solo uh, from Charlie Parker, which was great. Um, for me, you know, the sensibility of something versus the mastery of something, we're going to be moving in like light speed, hyperspeed, where you got to imagine violins have had centuries of development, guitars have had centuries of development. Um, whereas the software is changing every couple of weeks, right? <laughs> you know, it's, we've barely had time to be, you know, because the software and the medium and everything is changing. The turntable's only been around for, you know, a couple decades. Um, so all of that is to say that these instruments, even half the keyboards everyone's using have just been around briefly. I mean, Rob, Bob, sorry, Bob Moog invented the Moog keyboard in the sixties. Uh, Raymond Kurzweil invented the Kurzweil keyboard in the eighties. Casio, you know, Akai uh, as the samplers, all of that stuff is within just a couple of decades. Right. So how deep can it get in that short amount of time? Whereas violin, cello, those instruments have had hundreds of years. Um, and again, it's, a, it's you're walking a delicate line with saying what your taste is too, because some people might like the fact that it sounds crazy and you're sampling and cutting up a cello or some people might really want a, a pure Yo-Yo Ma recital that's crystal clear Bach concerto or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm agnostic. I just say, you know, all of the above, it's good. You know, I, I'm not really a, a partisan about different styles. You dabble with technologies. I and mean, dabble maybe is an insulting way of describing it, but sure. but uh, but you explore blockchain, AI, VR, you know, these things, and you do projects in this area. To what end? Wow. Um, huh. You know, it keeps life interesting, okay. realistically speaking, because if I was doing the same thing over and over and over, I would be bored out of my mind. Uh -huh. uh, as a fat, matter of fact, I was disenchanted with music for the last two and a half years or so. So I'm circling back to music. And during that last two and a half, three years, I've been doing a lot more film soundtracks, which actually I found really fun and kind of fun, cool to see how you put music in a film and it dimensionalizes it. Um, I'll probably be circling back because I have an album coming out later this year that I'm going to be, it's called The Invisible Hand. It's based on blockchain and AI. So I'll be, you know, it's music. I've been DJing globally. I cannot believe it, but for 20 years now, it's yeah. been like mind blowing since the nineties. Uh, Can so I just say you, you look exactly the same through it. So yeah. it's obviously good for you. Drink tea and go jogging. That's, uh -huh. my, <laughs> that's my secret. But, um, yeah, and I usually walk around ten to 20,000 steps a day. Let's see, today I've walked 12,000 so far because we had the panel, and but I'm still got to get another 8,000 8, steps in. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's there. there's a lot of elements that go into uh, music production that I find tedious and annoying, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of other mediums right now that are just fascinating. So keep life interesting. I mean, I think we're all going to live a lot longer if you 
stick to- Or we're all gonna die. It's one of those two things, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I I keep my mind active and I'm always checking out different media because that makes life interesting. That's that's the heart of your question, I think. Yeah, tell me about Quantopia. All right, well, here we are, March 12th, 2019. And on this day, actually, today's the actual 30th anniversary of the web. Uh, On this day in 1989, which was a great year for hip hop too, uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee made the first HTML website. Mm -hmm. And so I celebrate that with a salute to Sir Tim Berners-Lee. But uh, it's the 30th anniversary of the web, but uh, the 50th anniversary of the internet is this year. Um, And the first packets uh, between two hubs of the internet were from UCLA in 1969 to Stanford Research Institute, October 29th. So we're going to do a big uh, celebration of that. So Quantopia uh, is a sort of a homage to the 50th anniversary of the internet as we know it, uh, which is older than the web. Don't forget, people will burst into flames if you, if you blur the, especially geek culture. Yep. Uh, they'll get mad if you say the internet's the web and so on. But um, if you go back to the history of uh, distributed network systems, ARPANET and the, the way it precedes the web really was set up in an academic environment. And thank God it was, because if it's set up in a corporate environment, You'd have IBM or some of the earlier uh, information systems corporations controlling everything. But both Sir Tim Berners-Lee and David uh, Kleinrock, David Kleinrock's the person, first person to deal with a lot of the packet switching codes for the internet from 1969. Those two both were working in academic environments and thus the internet is free as we know it. So I celebrate that. Um, so Quantopia is a homage. Uh, it's a VR symphony and it's also kind of, a, when I say symphony, I'm using air quotes there. It's a string ensemble where I'm sampling and running elements live, and I'm also working with a chorus singing binary code. And we donated the project to archive.org, you know, the Internet Archive. Mm-hmm. I'll send you a link to it. But basically, it's a, it's a way of getting people to think about the way the, the Internet has unfolded over 50 years. And if you think about how powerful and weird that is, I'm 48, by the way, so I'm grandpa for DJ culture. But uh, 50 years, the world has radically changed. I mean, I remember... In the ancient 90s, it would take hours to download one MP3. And you'd have to do a dial-up tone and everything else. Um, and the sheer volume of computational power in your cell phone now, um, you know, it's been 10 years uh, since the first iPhone came out. It's 2008 to 2018, 19. Um, and in that 10 years, it's been an incredible revolution of mobile media. So Quantopia celebrates all of that. And uh, from the academic side of things, is it are you a traditional academic in that you teach, you research, you write, uh, you do all those things? Uh, I'm not a traditional anything. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's fair. Uh, I'm kind of just someone who's really interested in information. I read voraciously and I'm always checking out stuff. So um, it, like I said, my motto is it makes life interesting. I The worst torture you could inflict on me is to make me have to do or listen to or check out the same shit every day for like years. That would be like my version of hell or something. But um, to keep life interesting means you gotta be open. You have to be always, I firmly believe in a dynamic relationship to the arts. And uh, that means you're gonna be dealing with zillions of people and all sorts of different um, cities, countries, nations. Quantopia is kind of uh, an acoustic portrait of the internet. So that's, uh, you know, it, it, that project's going to tour for a while, and I'm really happy with the way it's unfolded. But to go to the, again to go to some of the I think the subtext of your question is how do we as creatives uh, think about the evolution of content? Really, that's that's the foundation of the 21st century. Is 
we're in a huge revolution of all these platforms for content, uh, YouTube, uh, Vimeo, and so on. Musicians are getting hammered with streaming. Nobody's making any money there. Uh, then you have other platforms like Kickstarter or Patreon, all of which are just different ways to monetize uh, this sharing impulse, like getting your material out. Um, and these are things that are uh, lingering over. I'm, I'm in the final days of this last album, so I'm just trying to get my thoughts together on that. And, you know, so these are questions I ask myself, too. All right, let's, let's end. You can set us some homework. What should we go read off the back of this interview? Wow. Okay. I read a lot. So let me, I'm going to narrow it down to three books, four books I think are great. Uh, anything by Cory Doctorow. I'm a huge fan of his work. Um, there's also a new book by Shoshana Zuboff uh, called uh, The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism. Really sharp and deeply insightful book about, well, surveillance capitalism. You know, uh, you're, you are not your data. I'll just leave that one with there. And then um, I'm rereading some science fiction classics um, because there's the Alita Battle Angel that came out, yeah. I went back to reread the comic book, that manga that that's based on. It's kind of fun. And then I'm rereading Alastair Reynolds, who's a Welsh science fiction writer. He has a book called The Terminal World uh, that's set in the distant future where Earth has been devastated. And there's uh, people live in this crazy city that's a vertical city that's highly stratified. And on each level only exists certain kinds of technology. Um, that you're, it's highly regulated, dystopian novel, bizarre, interesting. I like I like his work a lot. Um, I'm also rereading um, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, uh, just because the world feels more and more Snow Crash vibe, uh, especially with computational propaganda and the sort of the politicization of memes and the way memes kind of loop people into this different trances of information that, like Fox News or whatever. Uh, those are three books or kind of, well, a cluster of books that I think are interesting. Also, oh, you know, what's his name? Uh, he did this book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Wallace. Uh, that's a brilliant book. Um, and he's doing some really sharp stuff with thinking about um, radical and drastic climate change. David, uh, David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth. Right. Um, pretty grim, but, uh, <laughs> but sharp. Uh, him and Shoshana Zuboff. If you're going to think that these are all going to be like everyone singing happily as we dance in the garden of, you know, the Wizard of Oz or something, uh, it's it's much darker than that. But with the soundtrack of Lee Scratch Perry and uh, Charlie Parker, that seems like a nice way to do it. Yeah, well, if you're, I'm on an airplane every two or three days, and uh, it just makes life bearable. I mean, what, the first thing I do is when I get into a new hotel, is drop my bags, usually go for a five to seven mile run, uh, then catch up on zillions of messages, emails, and so on, and I don't like jogging with headphones, but a lot of people do. Yeah. But I will listen to music when I'm writing or working. Paul, thanks so much for being with us today. All right, it was a pleasure. Let me know how all this goes. The brilliant Paul Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky. And that's the MTF podcast. You may need to go back and listen to this one again a few more times. I certainly have. And while you're at it, feel free to share, like, star, rate, review, and above all, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's free, and it just means that next Friday and every Friday after that, the next episode will just be delivered straight to you with no hassle whatsoever. In the meantime, have a fantastic week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.